Welcome to the Best in Sales, your dose of education, inspiration, and entertainment with stories of the biggest wins. Maybe a typical sale was a pallet. What I sold was a truckload. And the biggest losses. We thought it was a slam dunk. It was a $15 million project. And, you know, get the phone call in the 11th hour that, sorry, you guys didn't get it. From the best salespeople in the world. Sales is not selling used cars. It's really about helping your customers to solve problems. And now your host, Owen Groman. I'm Owen Groman. Today on The Best in Sales, we have Adam Honig. Adam is the co-founder and CEO of Spiro, a stealth mode software company, as he describes it, focused on creating legendary salespeople. We get Adam to tell us as much as he can about Spiro, but more to the point, we focus on his over 20 years experience. We get his drawn as over 20 years experience in the technology industry, and we hear a lot about selling audaciously. Adam Honig coming up next on The Best in Sales. All right, so Adam, what is Spiro? Well, uh, you know, we're, we're still in stealth mode, so uh, there's not so much that I can say, but Spiro takes its name from the Latin word spirate, which means to breathe, and we're, you know, our mission is to really breathe new life into sales technology, and we have a great new product which we're going to be releasing this summer, I, I can't say too much about it, but what I can say is that our the aim of that product is to really create legendary salespeople, salespeople who really crush their quota year after year. And that's kind of what we're all about. I love it. I love it. So you got me hooked because you've got really good content online. I read a lot of your articles. You write some, I know. I think Justin writes some, your business partner, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Uh, you got a couple other folks maybe as well. But everything that you guys publish is great, and that's what got me going. I signed up for Spiro, but I couldn't avoid that question of like, what am I signing up for? Right, right. Well, the amazing thing is that, you know, we have like over a thousand people signed up just from the promise of what's to come, which is really exciting. So I guess we must be doing something right. Right, right. So tell me a little bit, Adam, and tell the listeners a little bit about what led you to where you are today with Spiro. I mean, I know it's an exciting new venture and, and it's going to be fun no matter what. But, you know, looking at your LinkedIn profile, which I encourage people to do, it's a strong one. I encourage people to look at the good ones and, and try to replicate them as best they can. Um, just tell me what led you to where you are today. Sure. Well, you know, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about this throughout the podcast, but I started my career in sales and I was the founder of a company with a bunch of guys and I led sales for that company and it eventually sold it. And then I started another company where I was the CEO and we focused on implementing CRM. And so along the way, we implemented Siebel and then Salesforce for 1500 companies. Um, you know, and, uh, we, wound up selling the company in 2012 to be part of one of the largest CRM consulting companies in the U.S. And, you know, the thing about CRM, as many sales guys can tell you, is that it's it's really made for the manager. It's not made for the sales guy. And, you know, without, without giving too much away, you know, the, the new product that we're creating, it's all about the sales guy. It's all about, and in sales women too. I don't want to exclude the women. Sometimes people on the blogs kind of call us out for using the term sales guys, but we do mean it in a gender neutral way, I promise you. And well, my first <laughs> guest on the show, Adam, if you go back to episode one, Shonda Miller said she, she just adopted that and she just said she calls herself a sales guy now because she just didn't want to fight that battle anymore. Well, you know, so, there are so many languages that have gender neutral pronouns. Unfortunately, English is not one of them. Right. So, so yeah, so we're, you know, the, the new company is attempting to, um, eliminate all the sins of Pat's CRM, not by creating a new CRM, by creating a, another product that's going to work with your CRM that's actually going to do something for salespeople themselves, not just sales management. So we're, we're really fired up about that. Yeah, I can tell. And it comes through in your verbiage and language. That's how you've hooked a thousand people to be members of something they're not quite sure what it is. That's pretty <laughs> powerful stuff. But um, Looking at your LinkedIn profile again, I mean, you've obviously had success and you've been in technology sales, to put it very broadly. Obviously, there's a little bit more to it than that. But the line that I liked the most that I pulled from your profile was uh, was this. This is quote unquote. So quote, it's all about outcomes and not the technology itself. Have uh, And uh, I like that a lot. It's all about outcomes and not the technology itself. Have you found that it's hard to get that through to salespeople working for you? Um, well, I think it's a constant battle. Because I think as, as salespeople, you know, we, we tend to receive a lot of time and attention and training about product features, um, which are fairly easy to articulate to people once you kind of get them down. But focusing on that, um, the outcome and what it really means for people 
takes a little bit more work. And so, yeah, so I think that it's, you know, we, we sometimes can gravitate towards the easier thing. I did a, um, I did a sales kickoff meeting for a, a friend of mine's company where I spoke to his sales team about, uh, outcome based selling. And, you know, the, the, the title of that talk was how to sell big fucking deals. And that's, you know, for me, the kind of language that you need to use to get people to pay attention to this. And I, I had a picture on, of a, uh, one slide that had on the left, it was a regular house cat. And on the other side of the slide was a lion. And I said to the team, do you want to be a cat or do you want to be a lion? And that was, you know, the, the kind of dialogue that we had about, about you know, outcomes really, you know, make the big deals happen. Because if you can align the your buyer's interests and what they're trying to do with the solution that you're providing, that's the goal. That's how you make it happen. And then we kind of step through how you do that. But, yeah, I, I'm a very strong believer in outcome-based selling. I love the challenger sale model as well. But, you know, really, you know, you know, getting sales folks to understand how to get that out of buyers and, you know, help them articulate it, that's that's where the action is as far as I'm concerned. Gotcha. Now, you're a co-founder, and are you the CEO? I'm sorry. I can't yes, I'm the exactly. CEO of Spiro Technologies. And you've been in that type of role. You've been obviously in leadership now for a while. That's another thing you said on your LinkedIn profile. I didn't write this quote down, but it was, if you're not focused on leadership, you're not focused on the right thing or something along those lines, right? Goals. Yep, absolutely. So that's where you're at now, but you obviously are passionate about sales, clearly. So when someone asks you what you do, aside from the specifics of, you know, I'm the co-founder CEO of Spiro, how do you describe that? How do you describe what you do and the impact you make on the business world? Well, it's really interesting because, you know, for me, again, it's still all about outcomes. So, you know, what, what do I do at Spiro is we're creating legendary salespeople. You know, that's our objective. It's not about you know, uh, you know, what do I do when I come to the office? It's not about my title. It's not about my function. And, and people that you're talking to, you know, I would say, or, you know, that's really what they're excited about. You know, so if you're, you know, a salesperson for Cisco, you know, just to pick that out of the air, you know, maybe, you know, what you're saying to people is, you know, we're, you know, my job is to really help my customers communicate much more effectively through, you know, technology or, or whatever the, the right, um, outcome kind of statement would be. But, you know, I, I wouldn't also shy away from saying that you're in sales either. I mean, I think that, you know, it's a it's a very honorable profession. And I feel like sometimes, uh, you know, maybe because of the way it's been portrayed in the media, people don't really have a good understanding of sales. You know, they think that we're all like uh, that movie Tommy Boy, right? Just, just talking to my boss about that one today. Yep. So, uh, you know, I think, you know, I think, you know, telling, you know, being very, you know, straightforward with people about being in sales so that people understand, you know, your motivations and drivers, but very, very quickly linking that to, you know, the outcomes of what you're trying to achieve. And and I really like to see that uh, in people's LinkedIn profiles. I know you kind of picked up that on my LinkedIn profile. For me, the most important thing about the LinkedIn profile is to say what my objective is. You know, mm -hmm. like, what am I trying to achieve? You know, it, and if you have a customer or a prospect who looks at your LinkedIn profile, you know, I'm sure that they want to see that you made President's Club and, you know, all these other great things, but that you've, you know, really helped people get something done in, in that kind of Zig Ziglar kind of way. I think that's, you know, pretty important, too. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I just experienced that myself. I kind of was looking at my LinkedIn profile. I had a guest, Robert Turson, recently who's really strong in that area. And I started to kind of look at what other people were doing and go – you know, if I'm a customer looking at this, there's a little too much of how I did stuff with customers, but but not enough about like what did that do for the customer. It was too much about what it did for me. Um, and so that was an interesting journey for me. And I hope that obviously other people pick up on what you're saying and, and get that as well. That's important, right? Because buyers are looking at LinkedIn profiles. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I sort of got my whole approach from a, a, a colleague named Niels Heemskirk, who is now working for Cigna Insurance, running a sales team out in, in the Midwest for Cigna. And like, I just looked at his goals and objectives for what he was said he was trying to do on LinkedIn. I was just like, wow, that's perfect. And, you know, insurance is pretty far removed from tech sales in many ways. Uh, but just like the, the thought that he put into it was really mind-opening for me. Right. So, Adam, let's jump into what got us talking. It was an article that you wrote um, and you published, and I follow you on Twitter. You know, everybody knows how Twitter works, right? Someone pops up. You have no idea how they got there. Maybe you do. I sure don't. Uh, it says they're talking about sales, and so I follow and see what happens. I'm very happy that I followed you and Spiro because it's some of the best content that I've found. 
And the title of the article, which I'm sure anybody could Google, and I'll link it on uh, on bestinsales.net, was Sales Jobs Are Legit Options for New Graduates. And you drew this parallel between when people think of the Air Force, they think of, they don't think of the logistics coordinators and the guys pumping air into the tires. They think of Top Gun. And when th- people think of sales, they think of either like Jim and Dwight in the office doing that kind of drudgery, or they think of the Wolf of Wall Street. They don't think of what sales actually is, and it's hurting. It's hurting businesses. It's hurting people because they're missing out on an opportunity to be in sales. So tell me a little more about that. Well, I was having this conversation with um, some soon-to-be recent college graduates on a, on a business trip, just randomly, you know, talking with some some guys on a plane, like you know, you tend to do, you know, and they were talking about their career choices and what they wanted to be, and you know, some of them had sort of a, you know objectives to be in leadership of a company at some point, or maybe even start their own company, and they wanted my advice about what to do, and I said, it's obvious, you need to go into sales, you know, and they were a little bit shocked by that because it, you know, it doesn't sound very glamorous to people somehow. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I don't have the statistics at my fingertips. What I was telling them is my impression is that most CEOs actually start in sales because that immersion in what the customer needs and feels and understanding and that kind of empathy that you develop is just so critical to, to being in leadership if that's what you want to do. But at the same time, you know, I feel like um, th- this generation of people has been hit with a lot of negative messages about selling, whether it's it's the movies or whether there's, you know, like articles being published about how, you know, you can build your business without salespeople. And there, I feel like, you know, it's sort of a there's a bit of a negative drumbeat. So I just really wanted to get out there and say, listen, sales jobs are not, you know, Willie Loman. It's not like some guy like I started in my career even going door to door doing selling. You know, right. it's you're part of a team. There's a lot of technology to support you. You know, it's not, okay, kid, here's a phone book. You know, go give me 10 prospects. A lot of companies have marketing automation and all this other great stuff to make sales jobs a much more fun and engaging type thing. And and plus, you know, you've got the opportunity to make really good money in sales and you know, in a control your schedule in a way that, you know, most job opportunities really don't. So I, I really believe that, You know, sales is a great career option for people right out of school. Plus, demand for it is really high. I'm sure you've seen the articles as well. But, you know, there's more sales jobs available today than we can fill. You know, so there's there's a bit of a mismatch there, which, you know, all things being equal should lead to some pretty good, uh, you know, monetary options for people. Yeah, there's one line in that article that is very consistent. And, you know, you see it everywhere and you hear it from people. I'm sure you heard a version of it from those college graduates or soon to be college graduates you were talking to, which was sales is not about convincing a potential customer to do something they don't want to do. Get that out of your head. Those are Adam's words. And that is what people think it is. I mean, I had a friend, I told him what I made in 2013 and he was like, oh my God, I wish I was making that much money. But you know, I just, I couldn't be that sleazy guy. Like I couldn't, you know, coerce people or I couldn't go schmooze or just play golf all day. And I was like, dude, what are you talking about? You have no clue whatsoever what I do, do you? And it's funny how common that is. I mean, this was an intelligent guy, a graduate or businessman, and he really thinks that's what sales is. It's incredible. Yep. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, I, I wrote, I can't remember whether we put it in that blog or in another blog. We've, we've done so many different pieces, but, um, you know, that movie, take him to the, get him to the Greek where, um, you know, they talk about, uh, mind effing people. Let's put it that way and convincing, yeah. you know, the rock star to do what they had. And I think that's what people think, you know, that sales guys do. And, um, you know, and sure, you know, I'm sure there are some, you know, bad examples out there, but the, the salespeople that I know who are successful really, really care about their customers. And that's that, you know, you can't fake that. You know, you, no. you, you know, it's, it, I know Abraham Lincoln said you can fool some of the people some of the time, but I have a terrible job at that. You know, like, like yeah. the only way to really make the sales thing work is by being completely genuine and out there, you know? Yep. Yeah, I had a uh, I published something on honesty recently, honesty and selling because uh, you know I, I had a situation. I it's it's actually on my blog, but um, yeah, I had a salesperson call me for this medical device. I have a broken wrist from attempting to play basketball, and uh, she tried to push this product on me. And at some point in the process, she twisted the truth. She didn't blatantly outright lie, but she mit- but she kind of took something a doctor said and turned it into a truth that wasn't there. And, you know, guess what? I'm in sales, so it's probably a little easier for me to pick that up. I've got a little maybe of a uh, more uh, fine-tuned radar than others. But 
it's 2015. I mean, it's no big secret what's going on. And if you're trying to just persuade or trick somebody, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. And the sales profession knows that. And so legit salespeople don't work that way. Exactly. And that, that's really all there is to it. Totally agree. That's a great, I'll have to look for that article. So that sounds like a great one. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah up on bestinsales.net on the blog. It's uh, as of today that we're recording this. It's uh, it's the most recent post. So uh, by the time this goes up, it'll still be pretty close to the top. So cool. I'll check it. So Adam, let's go back to your story a little bit. This happens. I, I, these are the best guests, obviously, when we get sidetracked and just start talking passionately about sales. So that that means it's a good show. But I do want to jump into your story a little bit more. So your Spiro today. Uh, your passion about sales goes back to, I think you started in, was it 1989 was your beginning in, in the sales world? Is that right? Uh, well, so, I mean, actually, so when I was in college, uh, you know, I did sales in college too. It's not like on my LinkedIn profile or whatever, but we, um, you know, we, we started a little enterprise in college selling t-shirts. Uh, and I, you know, I belong to a fairly, uh, big dorm and we decided that we were going to print t-shirts and then sell them door to door. So I went like literally at my 500 person dorm, uh, like door to door signing people up for, uh, for this t-shirt run that we were going to make about my, my freshman dorm. And it, it worked out great. Met a lot of people, you know, definitely, uh, you know, I'd say selling in a college dorm is probably a, a warmer environment than, uh, you know, any of our colleagues who've gone door to door in an office park or something like that. But it definitely, you know, for me, just felt very natural. And uh, in the early 90s, uh, when I was working for Cambridge Technology, you know, and basically following up on long lists of people who were suspects who might be interested in, uh, you know, in buying some additional education products from us and just kind of calling people up, seeing, you know, what they were thinking, what their plans were, following up, sending materials, sort of the classic, uh, you know, really what we think of as inside sales today. That's awesome. Was there a time or when you kind of said, you know what, this is what I do. I'm a sales guy and I can make this work. I mean, was there a specific sale or a specific occurrence when you kind of flipped that switch? Well, so um, I was part of the founding team for a company called Open Environment. We uh, spun out of Cambridge uh, technology and I was, I always say, I was the only guy on the team who could speak in full sentences. So I was the sales guy. (laughs) Okay. And, uh, you know, I was like, I was the sales guy. Everybody else was technical, and that was my job is to find the customers. And I think there were, you know, four technical founders and me. So, uh, yeah, at that point, it was like it was pretty obvious, you know, looking around the room who the sales guy was. Uh, you know, and that's – so for me, that was really the moment, I guess. And we, um, you know, we hired a sales team, and I, I started to be a sales leader at that point. I just published a blog um today actually so april 21st uh, about um things that new sales reps need to learn drawn on my experience of hiring a a sales team almost entirely out of college at the time so talk about new you know new graduates going into sales that was my first sales leadership experience which was very interesting um so there was uh you know a lot of uh, a lot of things that folks had to learn kind of right out of the gate in that role so you're the sales guy for that particular company because you had to be, but there was no, there was nothing forcing you to stay in sales. So what do you think it was that kind of made you go, I'm going to stick with it? Was it just pragmatic? Hey, this is what I've done now. It's a discipline I understand. I'll keep doing it. Or, you know, how did that kind of play out for you over your career? I mean, for me, it was always about the customer interaction, you know, and um, we, you know, my, my first company, Open Environment, we were selling a middleware solution. Um, before anybody had any idea what middleware was. And so we I still don't know. Yeah, that. okay. Well, it's, it's basically, <laughs> I mean, software that connects other bits of software together in a large company to make them talk. Right. And so today's middleware software companies include BEA and Informatica and MuleSoft and, and guys like that that have gone on to great success in the category. But we were, you know, we had a product that essentially allowed COBOL apps to talk to AS400 apps to talk to PC apps. And, you know, we just were out there evangelizing it. And we, I was very excited about the possibilities the technology could bring, the outcomes that companies could achieve with it. And it just, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to talk to everybody I could about it and get them to use the solution because I was just very enamored with it, you know. And I think, mm-hmm. I think for me, again, another thing about sales is if, if you're in sales, I would definitely, you know, make sure that you are totally passionate about whatever technology or service or solution you're involved with because that really goes a long way. Yeah, that's a great point. I'm going to sneak preview another blog post that I'll be doing pretty soon um, because of that point you just made. So 
I had an experience recently where I went and had a meeting. It was a big meeting, one of the biggest target clients I had. It was just one region, so it wasn't the whole the whole enchilada, but it was a pretty big meeting. And I had my thought of what I was going to go over. And I didn't feel like I did a very good job on that. The meeting ends, and I'm kind of like, ah, you know, I think I kind of blew that one. Two weeks later, we get the business, and I'm talking to my inside contact who I can have this level of dialogue with, and I was kind of like, hey, w- what happened? I thought that really didn't go that well. And he was like, dude. You came in there and, you know, it was kind of early. We were kind of figuring stuff out. But in the middle part there, you just kind of started describing what the service was and just kind of going with it. And you, it was so clear how deeply you believed in it. And we believed in you that we really didn't have a choice. You were by far the best solution that we analyzed. And I was like, huh. So I didn't even remember that I did this. It was just that I was so passionate and I kind of had this visceral belief in what I was selling that the part, the thing that I did when I didn't even realize I was doing it is what closed the sale. Right. So I think that point that you make Adam is, is very important. I mean, I'm one of those people that will tell people if you don't believe in what you're selling, just stop now, just get out of there, go do something else. Yep. Yep. And I, you know, I think, you know, I, I believe that ultimately all buying decisions on the buyer's part are non-rational. And what I mean by that is, they, they, the buyer can never have enough information to have a hundred percent certainty in whatever choice that they're making, right? And so they wind up making a decision that's in part based upon who do they feel that they can trust. And they're looking at you as the salesperson as the sort of the representative of that trust, you know, and your connection and passion and understanding and, you know, all of that kind of serves as a proxy for that. So I just, I, I know, like, early in my sales career, I felt like, oh, you know, it's really about the features and the fit and the blah, 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 the budget and this kind of stuff. And as I've kind of gotten more experience with this, I recognize that that passion and feeling about it is is probably 50% of the sale, you know? Yeah, yep. Yep, because you've got to drive solutions for people. I mean, we're not talking about selling a couple widgets. I mean, I think in your business and mine, it can be fairly complex. And so to get all those moving parts together, someone just has to believe that you will drive it to completion. No ifs, ands, or buts. Yep, yep. And if you don't seem like you're confident in doing that, that's such a major red flag. People are just yep. like, whoa, if this, if the sales guy doesn't seem confident, it's going to work. <laughs> for God's sakes, what are we doing here? Yeah, no chance. Yep. So let's talk about one of your stories, Adam, if you don't mind. I mean, whatever you can share um, about a, a great sale. I love to dig into stories. As you can already tell, we've shared a couple each already today. But do you have a, a sale that if, you know, if you're sitting there, you know, drinking a glass of scotch or whatever you want to drink and, and talking to a, an old friend, you'd say, you know what, the greatest sales story of my career is? Well, you know, for me, I have to say that I'm I'm generally a very optimistic guy. And, you know, I'm always, you know, you, you start a company, you have to be a beacon of optimism, right, to make things happen. So what always sticks for me is the ones that got away. Okay. So, you know, we, uh, you know, and, and I, you know, I'm the kind of guy, sounds like you are as well, that, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate. And so I get very passionate about my customer's business, you know, like I, we had a sales call at Kraft and I, I embarrassed the heck out of my consulting VP because I flew out there with a box of macaroni and cheese to be like, I love this stuff, you know, because I, I do, you know, and I wanted to show it like, like I, like I'm not embarrassed to say things like that. Right. And so when we were, we were pitching a deal at a Fortune 500 company, I'm not going to mention the name of it. And we, you know, we, my last company, we sold, you know, multi-million dollar CRM implementations, long sales cycles. You know, we had to, gain consensus about, you know, the approach and the technology and the people. And it was it was a long process. And we got to know this organization fairly well. And I felt like they really, you know, were a good cultural fit for what we were doing. You know, we they were very focused on the outcomes of the technology that they were getting, which, you know, often people, even buyers miss that. So we were really well connected. But they had uh, another division, which was also evaluating um, a similar sort of type of project. And ultimately what happened is this company wound up merging the two projects together into one stream. And so suddenly we were now not just bidding on a $2 million project, we were bidding on more like a $6 million project. And mm-hmm. suddenly our competition went from us kind of talking with the buyers to uh, one of the largest professional services firms in the world bidding against us who have, you know, the top executive relationships in the deal. 
And we did, you know, you know, my my background has almost always been the David against the Goliath. We're always competing against Oracle or IBM or somebody like that and trying to win, right? And and you know, usually with good success. So we weren't overly worried about facing this soulless consulting firm. But uh, <laughs> tell us how you really feel. <laughs> Who treats people like? chattel or whatever but you know they you know whatever so uh we we wound up losing the deal and we wound up losing the deal because we we stuck with our buyers too long you know how that goes you know it's like you've been there with them for six seven months they've been guiding you along they're your coach and you're like i don't know if we're going to win the deal based upon the guys that we're dealing with and if we go above them you know we're going to lose all the juice that we have Yep. You know, and, um, you know, it was a, it was a bad situation. It was such a tantalizing prospect to take the $2 million sale and turn it into the $6 million sale. And, you know, we, we probably should have done things differently. And that, you know, that for me is a, you know, a big, big challenge for sales guys is when to move on from your sponsors, you know? And if you're, that is, ah, and we, we, frankly, we blew it. We blew it, and because we were so connected with these guys, we you know, we thought they could carry it through for us, and they just couldn't. You know, it's a great story, and it's one of the classical sales dilemmas that that you know sales managers and directors and, and people deal with pretty frequently. Um, a good book, Adam, that I don't know if you've read or not. It's not like it's a big secret, but I, I'm surprised that it's not more well known in sales. Was I was actually referred to it by Steve Richard, a guest just a few weeks ago. Uh, RSVP selling. Are you familiar with that? I'm not. I'm not. What, what's the book's actually called the Joshua Principle. I'm sorry, it's not called RSVP okay. selling. Uh, the selling style, if you will, is RSVP selling. But there's a big section. It's it's told in as a story. Um, it's actually told as like a parable, if you will. It's about a. Uh, uh, you know, a, a sales rep who decides he's ready to take it to the next level. He has a mentor and, and, um, it kind of breaks down this, this fake, um, but very real sounding, uh, sale. And there's a big focus on that exact issue that you were facing. Um, it's, it's probably the best guide for how to navigate that, that I've read specifically. Um, and, and what I mean, what I'm focusing on here is the you've got your buyers and sponsors and you know you need to go a level up, but you're not sure how or, or the timing and, and some of that stuff. So that book does a really good job of, of uh, attacking that issue. Yep. Okay. I'll, I'll check that out. I mean, I think, you know, for, for a lot of guys and women, of course, uh, you know, having a manager or a coach who can think about these things with you who's not in the day-to-day so helpful. And I feel like sometimes sales reps get really resistant to feedback. You know, like, oh, this is my deal. You know, how could you know enough about it, you know, to uh, to give me advice? But I I would just, you know, you know, advise folks out there in Radioland to kind of keep an open ear to these kind of suggestions when they come to you. Because it would have really helped me, you know, if I was uh, taking some feedback then. Yeah, it's probably pretty well tied to the thing we said earlier about if you don't love what you're selling, get out. I mean, if you don't love your, maybe not love, but if you're not really feeling like you can get that advice from your manager or director, that might be another indication to look elsewhere because you're just going to be hamstrung in those situations. I know. I just feel like the vast majority of salespeople I talk to say, oh, I've got a great boss. He doesn't bother me at all. I barely ever hear from him. I'm like, oh, that's that's an excellent point. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. That's a really good point. I can't help Adam, but, but keep thinking about the Kraft macaroni thing. Um, that's a great one where you brought the box. I mean, it remind, as you're saying it, I'm picturing the cat and the lion slide again. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to be the, the cat or the lion in sales? Obviously, that kind of audacious way of doing things. I love that. It's the way I've always wanted to sell, and I've been in organizations where I felt like I couldn't because it wouldn't get supported. But kudos to you for doing it that way. Is that is that the most audacious kind of out on a limb thing you've done in a sales process, or do you have anything else for that one? Well, we we pitched Harley, and we won a project at Harley, and we all showed up in our Harley T-shirts, uh, you know, uh, at, in uh, Milwaukee. And I don't think any of the other you know pretty straight lace vendors were doing that. Was um, that before you had the sale, or that was when you won the sale? When we, when we were you no, know, when we were pitching, we showed up, nice. you know, in our Harley gear, uh, and the guys there are so cool anyway. Um, so I, you know, I feel like I've done other things like that. I can't, uh, nothing is really jumping out, but I'm, I'm, you know, it's like you go and visit these companies and they've got their products and cases in the front of this, you know, the headquarters. Like, of course they're going to be connected to that stuff, you know? Yeah. You know, yeah. so I'm, I always try to do that. Um, you know, every time I know, uh, you know, we've, one of my, uh, investors, uh, 
Oh, I'll tell you one. I'll tell you one that we did, which was really great. Um, so we were pitching a deal at Foot Locker, and we wrote into our proposal that uh, we would only buy sneakers from Foot Locker from now on if they went with us. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and we were contractually obliged to do that. So, uh, yeah, so, yeah, totally. But uh, I look for any opportunity to show a customer that we really get them and we know what they're trying to do, you know. So and you can have fun with it. And, and I know people are like, oh, it's goofy or, you know, but it's, it's like telling somebody that, they, that their kids are cute. I mean, who's going to say no, you know? Right, right. Yep. I mean, you have to mean and, it like everything else, right? But yeah. if you do mean it, then go for it. Yeah, you have to mean it. And you're, you're I mean, it is, it's differentiation. You know, I mean, it's showing that you care and that you, you know that feeling, Adam. I mean, for you, it probably started, maybe it's been this way your whole life and, and in that way you're lucky, but you know that feeling when you're kind of like, should I do it? Should I do it? Should I do it? And a lot of people just run away from that. But then when you actually do it, there's nothing better than that feeling. It opens up a whole other world of possibilities for you. Totally. Then um, it sounds like that's what you do with your style of selling. It's awesome. I'm just, you know, I, I what I've learned over time, and this is the experience of having do, done this for a while, that the more out there you are with you, the the more authentic you are, just the more people trust you because there's nothing to hide. And so if that's the way you are, that's the way you are, you know, and people get it, you know, but I don't think it's something you can force either, you know? Yep. Yep. I agree. And also, you know what? Maybe some people don't get it and they don't like it. And guess what? You just pruned your funnel nicely because yeah. they were probably never going to buy from you anyway. Oh, I'll tell you another one like that. So we, my last company, we had what we called a no jerks hiring policy. I swear to God. Uh, yeah. You know, we, my first boss right out of school was like literally the guy from Horrible Bosses who fired the HR director for being <laughs> too fat. I swear to God, that's exactly okay. the story from my first company. So I was like, no, no jerks in my company when we started my last company. And so... um you know, we always made that part of our pitch. Like, you, you, you want to hire us? You know we're not going to be jerks. And we went and we pitched this insurance company. And they were like, you know, we kind of need jerks to come in and tell us what to do. And I'm like, well, that's not us, so you better hire somebody else. And sure enough, they did. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, it totally qualifies people out. But it, it's probably for the best, right? Totally. All right, before we move into part two of the program, I want to share with our audience a service that is helping lots of people sell more and will do the same for you and your sales organization. Cold calling is dead, claim the self-appointed experts, but the experts are dead wrong. Voresight BP has a program backed by 10 years of real-world research confirming that no other sales activity has as great a return on effort when it comes to pipeline growth as cold calling. Voresight BP is a professional services consulting and training firm. They've helped companies like HP, Verizon Wireless, and Citrix Online turn their salespeople into enthusiastic and efficient prospectors. Check out their testimonials page. Here's a one-sentence sample of what people say. Quote, the powerful two-day on-site training was hands down the best inside sales training our team has ever received. End quote. That's just one sample. Their page at voresightbp.com slash testimonials is full of reviews like that. Voresight BP has been named a top service provider by the American Association of Inside Sales Professionals five years running. Voresight BP, true performance breakthrough is driven by the thoughtful but not complex application of persuasion. Voresightbp.com. So Adam, it's been great to hear your story so far. Now we're going to move into part two of the program. Okay. I don't and have to take a test or anything like that, though, right? Yeah, actually, that's what it is. It's going to be a test. So the, that was fun, and now we're into the really boring stuff. All right. Just kidding. Next, we're going to talk about some of your perspectives on sales. We'll continue to use examples from your own career as much as we possibly can, but we just want to get, you know, we want we want some of that great content that you drive. We want to hear your responses to some kind of common sales dilemmas of the day, sure. if you will. So the first thing is about pricing. And I know as a founder CEO, I'm sure you've been deep into this. The uh, the founders are the best ones to ask this one. But I call this kind of the sales gut check. You can do a good job, but when it comes down to pricing the deal, what are you really made of? you got to balance maximizing margin with making sure you win the deal. How do you balance that and, and how do you approach that in your business today or in businesses in the past if it's more relevant to past businesses? Well, um, I, you know, here's, here's my point of view about this. And, and I guess I was going to say I feel very passionate about it, but I guess that statement could be applied to many things that I'm going to be talking about today. Um, you know, my last company, we were always the most expensive option. Okay. And uh, I firmly believe that people ascribe value to price. Uh, if you're in the supermarket and there's a bottle of olive oil that's 
$5, there's one that's $10, there's one that's $25. You're going to be like, holy cow, I might not buy it, but that $25 bottle of olive oil, I bet it's really good or whatever. That's just the way your brain works. Mm-hmm. So I would set expectation and I would encourage my sales team to set price expectation right from the first meeting. You know, we're this kind of company. Here's what we do. Here's the kind of outcomes that you should get from that. And I need to let you know, we might be the most expensive option that you're dealing with. And frankly, it's because we're really the best. And that's part of our, you know, mission. And, you know, so right from the outset, we were always setting, you know, expectations that, you know, we were very high and that, you know, that's kind of the way that it worked. And if we got into a situation where the customer you know, really wasn't able to pay, they didn't have budget for what our service was. Forget about people who are just sort of in a negotiation process and trying to get the best deal. We can talk about that for a minute. But, you know, what we would always work to do is to reduce, like, the scope and the components of the deal and not simply be discounting on the uh, the, the price of the deal, if you will. You know what I'm saying? Yep. So that was that was very much the approach that we took there. And, you know, my point of view related to this is I don't know what the percentage is for your business, but if we're not losing 25% of our deals on price, we don't have the right pricing strategy. You know, that's that's my point of view. You, you have to lose. If you're not losing deals on price, your price is too low, period, you know. And so you just have to be willing to accept that. Now, it's a lot easier for me as the CEO or the sales VP to say, well, we're going to have, you know, put out 400 proposals this year and we're going to lose 100 on price. Like, but, you know, that kind of sucks for the sales guy. So we have to qualify very early in the process to make sure that we know kind of where the the buyers are, where the appetite for investment is. But like with so many things, and I hope I'm not just rambling here, but it, but it goes back to outcome-based selling. You know, mm-hmm. if you know what the outcomes are and it's a non, you know, not sort of a straight bake off kind of situation, price really shouldn't be the big issue. Even in a even in this deal that we were talking about, that would have been a six million dollar CRM implementation. The, the, the total cost of that, including the customer's internal time, the software that they had to buy, the maintenance. I mean, it, it probably would have been a. 50 or 60 million dollar spend overall for them that we would have been 6 million bucks on. Do you think it, w- if it was 5.5 million dollars instead of 6 million that would have moved the needle for these guys? No. Yeah, that's a that's a great perspective. Yeah. It's interesting because I would say that out of every 5 companies, four people, you know, let's just say there's five salespeople listening to this. Four of them are going to go, "Yeah, but I can't do that in my business." So to play devil's advocate a little bit on that, I mean, there's obviously something that happens before pricing that causes you to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Can you explore that a little more? Well, I mean, like like we were talking about, it's sort of brand positioning. I mean, yep. you know, uh, I, I never went to business school or any crap like that. I've got a degree in philosophy. I've just been out there doing stuff. So I, when I say, you know, like I know that like Peter Drucker has like a theory about the four main strategic advantages that you can have. Price is definitely one of them. You can be the price leader. You can be the Walmart of your industry. And you know what? That's just not for me. I don't I don't think there's enough value in that. Uh, for for me and the the type of things that I enjoy being with, so it's perfectly a legitimate strategy to be the you know uh, infosys who's able to charge guys out at twenty bucks an hour and still make money. That's awesome, you know, good for them. But that's so it's part of who you want to be with too, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the yep. brand positioning. You know, it's the segmentation strategy that you're going after. It's the expectation setting of the prospects during the the sales cycle. But I think from a individual sales rep perspective, for me, it kind of comes down to pipeline. You know, if you're always in a situation where you're needing to discount deals because you need to maybe close a higher percentage of your deals to make your number, you, you've got a pipeline problem. You, you, you might have a pricing problem, but you, your pipeline issue is driving that, that you have to win that deal, you know. And so I would encourage those organizations that are in those kind of situations to take a hard look at what they're doing at the top of the funnel to make sure that they're providing the right resource to the sales team to make sure that they've got enough pipeline to turn down the the shitty deals. Does that make any sense? It does. No, I mean, that's kind of the answer I was looking for. I think it's a lot about the funnel. 
It's about being willing to quote unquote lose deals, but, but hopefully just not even have those deals on the table in the first place, because you've done a good enough job of building a profile of the customer that you want. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to sit there and put it on a, a PowerPoint or whatever. Well, it's not really easy, but you could do it that way. But more to the point, it's your salespeople, like you said, with their funnels going, the initial conversation price came up 37 times in, in, you know, 10 minutes, probably not a good prospect. Let's move on. Yep. I also believe, you know, so I, we've got a blog coming up about the negative close and that's a perfect example to, to pull that out, to say to the prospect, Hey, I think price is really important for you guys and we're probably going to be really expensive. So we should probably disengage now. Right. And see what yeah, they say. That's a powerful thing. Yeah. That's a power. You got to have a pretty darn good sales rep to be able to pull that one off. That's good. <laughs> All right, next question, Adam. Would you call sales more of an art or more of a science? And you have to pick a side. Uh, I would say it's a science. I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of people who believe that there's an innate quality in people that um, that makes them salespeople. And I, I, I don't want to dispute that, but I think that uh, my experience having worked with yeah, thousands of salespeople at this point. You know, I believe that, you know, if people have the desire to excel at sales, they can learn all of these different skills. And you don't have to be a crazy extrovert to make that happen. Some, I mean, you know, so, uh, going back to my first sales team that we kind of hired a bunch of folks right out of college and, and kind of trained them up on sales and, and got them going. Some of them were totally classic extroverts, and some of the most successful ones really weren't. Um, you know, so I think it, I think there are skills that you can learn, just like playing the guitar or you know learning how to program that can make you effective in sales. And sometimes the folks who think that they've got all that natural ability, you know, might be missing a thing or two because they've always succeeded just with their force of personality. So I'm on the science side. Interesting. I like to gamble throughout the show or, or before I even start the show and I've just kind of seen you online and that stuff about which side you'll be on. And I lost my bet today. I thought you'd be art just based on the Kraft Macaroni and the Harley and, and you know, some of the way you kind of write. I would have guessed you'd say art. I would have guessed you would have said it's close. Science is a big part of it, but I did have you down for art. So I lost that bet. Hmm. Well, sorry about that. How much did you lose? <laughs> um, you know, I don't know. Lunch, I guess. <laughs> nothing, nothing too much. So, Adam, let's talk about your perspective on sales versus marketing. That's not the way we're supposed to talk about it, but look, that's the reality of a lot of organizations. I think that marketing has become sort of sexier than sales in the 21st century, just largely due to the, the fact that uh, marketing gets tied to the word social, so it's more social marketing than it is social sales. That's obviously changing as we talk, but do, do you agree or, or do you have a perspective on marketing versus sales and how the two can work together in a business? Sure. Well, you know, I think that, you know, uh, the the traditional sales view of marketing is you know that those guys really don't know what they're doing. <laughs> so the good news is that the um, you know the the advances in technology I think have really helped the marketing department um, in, in specifically things about lead nurturing and the, a concept that you know I mean when when you and I first started in sales you know we we probably got you know, sort of boxes of cards to follow up on people. And that kind of turned into electronics. And now all of the marketing technology that's out there today enables marketing departments to have a lot more knowledge and understanding about what's going on in the lead flow process so that they can provide better <clears throat> better leads to sales. Now, that, that being said, uh, you would think that that would be a, a bigger pipeline and that everybody would be, uh, you know, jumping up and down about that. But the, the sales folks that I am, you know, interacting with a lot as we're beta testing our new product, I mean, frankly, it actually causes a little bit of anxiety sometimes. Some of the best marketing companies are producing so many leads that the guys are just like, oh, my gosh, slow that down. I'm not able yeah. to deal with it. So I think I think we're kind of my prediction is we're moving from a situation where, you know, marketing was kind of like the desert for sales guys to being, you know, one of these supermarkets where there's so many choices that we don't even know what to buy. You know, it's a terrible analogy, but do you get where I'm going with that? No, I do. I do. I mean, I think it's a very uh, it's a very detailed answer, which I appreciate. So, uh, but I think, you know, more and more I'm seeing sales and marketing being friends, you know, and I'm seeing uh, marketing people held accountable to the results, uh, the sales that come out of campaigns and not just the, you know, the number of leads and the front end metrics. And I think, you know, my encouragement for, you know, uh, CEOs is to tie the comp plans to the marketing department, not to the indicators, but to the outcomes. 
just like the sales team, and that'll make everything work a lot better. Interesting. That's a great perspective. So, Adam, what's your favorite sales tool? You can't say you can't say Spiro yet. Hopefully, in three or four months or whenever it comes out, it'll be your favorite sales tool. But what's your favorite sales tool that you would share with the audience? Hardware, software, whatever it is, something that you just use every day. Sure. Well, you know, I'm a big fan of Yesware. So I don't know if you're familiar with Yesware. Uh, nope. They're they're a Boston-based company, uh, fairly sizable at this point, and they provide a bunch of email uh, tools to help in the sales process. And my favorite part of it is the one that allows you to see who's opened up your email. And so basically, if I send you an email and I enable Yesware tracking in it, when you open up the email, I get a little pop-up on my screen that says, oh, Owen just opened up the email. And, um, you know, in my new business, you know, we're reaching out to a lot of folks, getting their feedback and ideas. And, you know, because we're kind of a new business, uh, people don't always immediately recognize uh, us. And so sometimes you can get kind of paranoid, like, oh, did he get the email? Is it is he looking at it? And, and what's going is on? Is anybody getting this? Is anybody yeah, getting this email? The Nobody is getting that. <laughs> like, I send out 100 emails. What What's going on? No, I'm not even getting one back. And so with Yesware, you can see when people open it. Now, I'll tell you a funny story. So um, <clears throat> my last company, uh, Salesforce.com, invested in my last company, and I'm you know, definitely in conversations with people about raising money for the new business down the road when, when we need it. And so I sent an email to the, the top guy at Salesforce about, um, you know, hey, here's the new company. Don't really need you to do anything. Just want to kind of be aware of what you're doing. And I turn that Yesware tracker on. And not only does it um, show you, uh, you know, that somebody opened it, but it shows you the location, you know, by IP address. So it's not the perfectly accurate thing, but a pretty good location about where the person is that opened it. And my screen, like for the next hour, kind of lit up with saying, oh, somebody opened that email, somebody opened that email, and you could see it kind of being forwarded around the whole country <laughs> from that one email that I sent, and then like an hour later, I finally got a response to the email, but it was just amazing to watch in real time as my message kind of worked its way through, uh, you know, different stops, if you will. So pretty cool. So I would definitely, so if you're prospecting and you're trying to see, you know, hey, people looking at my emails, are they clicking on the links in my emails? Like, did they ever get it? Like, what should I do? Should I send them another email? Should I call them? Yes, where? So I would definitely check that out. That's really fun. I mean, an interesting side effect of that is that we talked a little bit about the marketing versus sales thing. I mean, that's a borderline marketing tool as well as sales. Sure. But you talk about marketing and sales coming together. That's a great way because I know, especially earlier in my career when I was doing less strategic selling and it was more about, let's put a number on the board. Where's the numbers? Put another number up. I mean, you get kind of addicted to that. And that opening of the email, it's almost like a, it's like a result, right? It's like it almost feeds that addiction to seeing something happen. So you can probably coax some of your um, old dog's new trick salespeople that maybe don't like newfangled marketing tactics yep. into uh, into that with that method right there. I like that. I mean, theoretically, if you call the guy right after you open your email, he's probably sitting there at his desk or on his phone, you know, so it's, it might be a good selling moment. For, I think you have to be careful, though, because sometimes it makes me a little paranoid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. That's it. I mean, that's a really good point about the overall social selling. I'll tell you a quick story. Um, interested in your perspective on this. I'm using. Um, I don't want to throw them under the bus, but there's a you know very well known social tool that I'm using, and I'm using a new a new product from them. Uh, it's it's very abundantly clear that they use kind of sales 2.0 or 3.0 or wherever we are on that scale at this point methods. And uh, I, I got an email from someone that was just a little too personal. Um, a little, a little too clearly using information that was readily available to them to try to get my attention. Hmm. And I was kind of like, ah, that's, that's too much. Yeah. I, you know, I, I, it's fine with trying to help me achieve, you know, look me up and see what my objectives probably are and help me get there. But, uh, what you just did there was too much, yeah. too social of the selling. Totally. <laughs> So you got to be careful with some of that, but it sounds really cool. So Yesware, I'll link, I'll we'll link it on the show. But it, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people writing this down right now. Do you, you, is it just Yesware.com? Do you know? Yep, just Yesware.com. Okay, cool. Uh, I'll definitely link it um, on the show notes page on BestInSales.net as well. Adam, is there a person or a book or a movie that to this day inspires you to be one of the best in sales? Well, you know, I would say that you know I, I mentioned this briefly at the beginning of the call, but I really, really like the Challenger sale. Are you familiar with that? book yeah conceptually sure yeah so you know for me you know it's um 
moving away from the consultative sale that I think a lot of us were kind of trained in to begin with, tell me your pain, you know, help me understand where you're at. No, no, no. You are the business advisor to this company. Go and tell them where you think there might be an opportunity to make things better and really challenge yourself as well as them to make that happen. And for me, I think that that ties much clearer into the finding the objectives than you ever will by asking. If, you know, I meet some sales guy and he says, hey, tell me what keeps you up at night. I'm like, I'm not going to tell you. But if you research what we're doing and have an understanding and say, hey, I've got some ideas. Maybe they're not the best. But what do you think about this, that or the other thing? You know, I respect that because you've put effort into trying to figure that out and make that happen. And I bet it sparks a much better discussion than just kind of going blank slate at, tell me your pain, you know? And so I, I find that to be definitely inspirational for me, you know, throughout the, the sales journey here. So would you recommend if someone wants to explore that? I know oftentimes these things start with one seminal book and then there's 15 other versions of it. What would you recommend someone go seek out to learn more about that? Yeah, I would just Google the challenger sale and, you know, it's a good book. You can read it or you could probably just get the summary online. You know, it's, yeah, right. it's not, uh, it's not the hardest concept ever. Gotcha. Well, Adam, this has been a great show and like a great sale, I'd say it's worth celebrating. So how do you celebrate a great sale? Well, you know, I, we have a, uh, a bottle of uh, 20 year McAllen in the office right here. And, nice. you know, when we have, uh, you know, it's kind of old school, but, uh, you know, when we make it happen, that's what we like to do. We have got, we got the setup. It's a little bit like Mad Men. You know, we don't mm -hmm. do it every day, but, you know, occasionally that's what it takes. So are you a, uh, are you a scotch drinker or is that just for effect? No, no, I definitely, I, I'm definitely a scotch drinker. This is one of the things that when I was a young sales rep, one of the older guys took me aside and said, okay, you're going to have to learn how to do this if you're going to be in sales. And so, uh, scotch. green scotch back in the nineties, man, that was very big. That's so awesome. yeah, so that's, for me, it's been sort of the thing ever since. I caught that one. I caught that one too. I'm a big fan of, uh, Lafroig and Lagavulin and that stuff. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm never comfortable saying it, but you know, it just looks like Islay, the Isla or however the right way to say it. I know. It. Is it Lagavulin or Lagavulin? Yeah. Yeah, I know. Right? You always sound like an idiot whatever you do. <laughs> you either sound pretentious or dumb. So you have to choose which one, but. Um, but anyway, I, I always like to say, you know, I always like that my kind of quiz for myself at the end of the day is, did I earn my scotch today? Right. So if you go home and you have a, a glass of scotch and you didn't really do that much that day, you kind of feel like a jerk. Yep. And if you had a great day and you got some stuff done, then that's the right reason to drink scotch. So I always, I always use that same quiz. Did I earn my scotch today? Oh yeah. Well, Adam, thanks so much for joining us on the best in sales. Remind folks one more time how they can certainly sign up for Spiro. Let's start with that. But any other way to kind of, you know, learn more about what you're working on and, and connect with you? Sure. Well, I would say, you know, if you're interested in being a legendary salesperson, uh, you know, navigate to SpiroHQ.com and check out, you know, our blog and, and sign up to be one of the first to take a look at our new product. You can also follow uh, Spiro at uh, Spiro HQ on Twitter or me, Adam Honig, H-O-N-I-G on Twitter as well. And we're all about helping sales guys. So it's, you know, it says right on our website, if you want to try to sell us something, we're right here for you. Just be prepared. I love that. That's awesome. And for those of, uh, those of you who follow at the best in sales on Twitter. I tweeted recently that uh, I actually I actually uh, promoted you guys, Adam, to my followers because it is really one of the best. I mean, you know how it is. I've got I follow I don't know several hundred people, and there's a lot of reposting and and, and that kind of stuff. But usually, when you guys tweet something, I read it because it's usually pretty good and it's usually different. It's a different take and perspective, and it fits that kind of audacious way of doing things that that you do that is embodied very well in your saying: create legendary salespeople. Awesome. Excellent. Well, thanks. Uh, good talking with you today. Absolutely. Thanks, Adam. Thank you for downloading the Best in Sales podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and visit our website at bestinsales.net.